interested in a circular economy and more in circular economies. So, you know, you've got like the small kind of community circular economy that plays into the wider regional circular economy and that plays into the national circular economy and then that the international circular economy. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Flight to Repair podcast. For those of you who are new, I'm Jack Monahan, and this week we have Ali Means, creator of The Gilder, a website that facilitates repair through non-monetary exchanges. Ali and I chat about how The Gilder is helping to socialize repair, how it's helping communities become more resilient, what circular economies can look like at the local level, and where right to repair could go wrong. If you'd like access to the full interview, podcast transcripts, and original reporting from Fight to Repair, you can sign up to be a premium subscriber to help us cover more emerging stories like this one. All right, let's jump into the interview. Ali Means, welcome to the Fight to Repair podcast. Thank you for joining us. Really appreciate it. For folks that don't know you, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so thank you for inviting me. Subscriber to the newsletter. I enjoy it very much. Yeah, I'm Oli Means. I'm from the UK originally, but I live in the Netherlands now. I live in Amsterdam. I really fell into the repair world through, I guess, the love of extending like the life of objects and the making side of it. I loved the making side of design, being in the workshop and fixing things and stuff like that. But I felt quite guilty about making anything new. And so that's really when I went into repair. Honestly, I'm a much better systems thinker than I am like physical designer. And so then I got into this idea of repair systems and like strategies to enable repair. And then I went to Design Academy Eindhoven, which is a design school based out of the Netherlands, quite well known and highly regarded. And there I could really get into the topic and then I set up to Gilda. And can you tell us a little bit about the Gilder? You mentioned systems thinking. Is that something that you thought a lot about when you were building it? Not so much. Honestly, I wanted to graduate the school without making anything, like without making anything new. That was kind of the chip in the bonnet as I was going along. And so, yeah, I was thinking a lot about the system and the scalability of repair. And so the Gilder started as a really simple exchange actually with friends. So that started out just as an exchange, oh, I can fix this. And could you do something for me in return? And this proved quite fruitful. So I set up the Gilda as this non-monetary exchange platform to enable repair. And then it grew further afield and really became about like the exchange of knowledge and skills and tools within the local community. Uh, and then it's really all documented through photographs. I love photography. I think it's a great way of telling stories without words. And generally, I think you can say so much and it's so simple. And now, of course, everyone can take a photograph. Given that a lot of times when we're talking about repair, we're thinking about how, how do we spur repair? How do we make repairs happen more frequently? How do we make it more accessible, more universal? Talk a little bit about what a repair threshold means and how that fits into the Gilder as a platform. So the repair threshold really is like how simple is a repair to do. So it's a term that I coined when I was writing my thesis. My thesis was written on the cost of time to repair. Like how long does time cost you to repair something? And of course, that's very different for like someone who earns 20 euros an hour to someone who earns 400 euros an hour that they have a very different cost of time. And I was interested as to whether that would influence the likelihood of someone to repair. Because historically, repair has always been for 
the lower classes, lower economic domains, and when materials were scarce, that's when a lot of repair took place. And then the threshold really is, is that account of, okay, how accessible are tools? How accessible is knowledge? How accessible are the skills? How accessible are spare parts? Do you have the time to do the repair? And can you afford the repair? And then if you kind of bundle all those things together, you get the repair threshold. And this really changes over time, right? So a bicycle, I think is quite a good example of that, where a bicycle by definition has very standardized parts. The parts are very accessible in your local community usually, and therefore the repair threshold is quite low. Most people know how to fix a bicycle, particularly in the Netherlands. But if you take a vintage bicycle, maybe you know, the theory is the same, but you can't find the parts because it's too old. So the repair threshold for a vintage bicycle is much higher. And then you have an e-bike and maybe the parts are there, but they're way more expensive. And so again, the threshold is higher than normal. How much does localism play? Like how much does keeping things moving within communities, supporting communities, communities supporting themselves, how much does that factor into how you see repair? Because a lot of, I think a lot of the problems that we're seeing in especially because we take a very like Western industrialized approach to repair, just given that Paul and I are based out of the States, a lot of that is driven from high volume, low quality goods, and we end up disposing them. And so you're exactly right in that repair is not in itself good. It's good because it can offset a lot of these problems of disposability. So localism, I feel like is a pretty big part of reducing a lot of that by keeping things more circular. I don't know how I feel about like the whole circular economy label, but I think being able to maintain life cycles and keep things in local is really important. So I was curious, like, especially because the Gilder was really based in a very small geographic area. How are you thinking about repair when it comes to community? Localism is just crucial for repair. It's kind of funny that you mentioned the circular economy, because I think that that's really important as well. I think it's important on a local level. So I'm kind of less interested in a circular economy and more in circular economies. So, you know, you've got like the small kind of community circular economy that plays into the wider regional circular economy, and that plays into the national circular economy and then that the international circular economy. So it's like concentric rings, but I think repair really fundamentally fits in those kind of local smallest ring of the circular economy. These concentric rings, they're not a model. I've just completely made that up on the spot. <laughs> get it though. I think about a lot of this, I don't know. I feel like we can get really bogged down in buzzwords and like concepts instead of the reality of what's unfading. Yeah. And that's it. It's also like, how do we also stop it from becoming a trend? Because repair could, particularly in clothing, repair could become really trendy, right? People with like holes in their jeans and they put patches over them and you're like, whoa, this is great. It's great for the environment. It looks great. Is this solving anything on a really fundamental level? So I think that I'm really interested in how to keep repair local for products that are made on a larger scale. And I think what's another kind of interesting key tie-in to repair in my mind on this local level is upgradability. This kind of also goes back to maybe one of the risks that 
repair Caesar's business in innovation, like lack of innovation. If we're trying to ship a product every six months, we can't afford to have it repairable because we won't be able to innovate. But then I think this kind of upgradability point, which is to say, okay, I can repair it. And at the same time, I can upgrade it. I think that's a very interesting concept. Because it's pretty easy to conceptualize in terms of like modular electronics, right? I remember like the modular phone back, I want to say back in 2008, was like this huge idea, which didn't really pan out, but like, I think Framework's a really good example of that. And Peter Mui, who I'm referencing again, he was on like a Wired conference in San Francisco and he was talking about like, you could upgrade your toaster. And he talked about how like, it's going to be important, especially if people are going to have agency over their stuff they're going to want to upgrade it the way that they like it. And I think that is another incentive for people. It's like, if you can control your stuff, you can make it work for you in the best way possible. Yeah, but I think there also needs to be an element of simplicity to it, though. There's a, a lot of people who don't care about their toaster, as, as long as it toasts. I'm happy with it if it makes my bread crispy. But I'm not happy with it when it breaks. And I think that's also a challenge, which is diagnostics. John Deere is probably the best example of this. You're going from the toaster to the tractor. I actually read on your newsletter that Wyoming farmers are going back to mechanical tractors because John Deere still owns the software. In the internet of things, what's going to happen when your toaster is connected to the internet? Who owns the toaster? But something I think that's been coming up in a lot of what we talked about is convenience. And I talked to Emily West, who covers Amazon, she wrote a whole book about it about how Amazon branded convenience. I'm just curious about what's your take on like where convenience fits into repair. Cause I feel like that fits into the threshold thing. That was exactly what we were just talking about with the toaster. We are conditioned to just do the most convenient thing, buy the most convenient product, throw something out if it's yeah. not convenient to repair. We're hugely conditioned to do the most convenient thing in the sense of convenience, a capitalist model that Western society operates in is massively driven by productivity. And therefore, if you can complete X in the shortest amount of time for the lowest possible cost, you're highly productive. And that cost might be like financial or personal energy. And repair is just not productive. It's easier for me to order something new online than to repair it from a time point of view. But I guess this is where pay per use or like subscription models come in. The the business takes on the convenience of repair. And in that sense, then the business is also incentivized to make the goods durable and repairable because they want to have as least breakages as possible because they want to have at least sendbacks as possible. And when something does break, they want to be able to fix it as quickly as possible so they can send it back out again. Convenience kind of works in both favors of the consumer and the business. It just depends on the kind of the model that we're operating in. Yeah, because I feel like a lot of times we see subscription models as vehicles for companies to squeeze money out of people and to exert control over products. But in that view, I guess there are ways to reverse the roles there. Yeah, and it's also subscription models are usually fixed or kind of linear in the wrong way, like that they increase with inflation, right? So your subscription model is like 20 euros this month and it's 21 euros next year. But what about the other way, right? What about something that gets cheaper as 
you have it for longer. So you're incentivized to keep it for longer. And not on the finance model where you buy it outright, but that usually doesn't include repair. But your washing machine, you pay 15 euros a month for, and that includes repair, move, service, whatever. But next year it's 14 euros a month. And then it's 13 euros a month. And then it's... So you're really incentivized to keep it for as long as possible. But then we start getting into this conversation of degrowth and what will repair look like in degrowth economy. Um, because then we're offering, then it's down to businesses offering repair as a service. And then I know we spoke about this slightly before this call about is right to repair, like how will that impact the environment when it's offered through a service model. I stumbled across this paper okay, a few months ago, which really got me thinking. And the paper is called Pricing Welfare and Environmental Implications for the Right to Repair. Because I think everyone assumes the right to repair is a good thing. But in the same way that like solar panels were the thing that we needed, now there's a huge problem with them. Like who's doing the due diligence on the repair movement? So to summarize this paper, in the current structure, the right to repair movement could be harmful for like certain categories of goods. That's blasphemy for you to be saying this on this pod. So. <laughs> uh, there you go. That's me. <laughs> Thank you. Good night. Yeah, but for, if you think, okay, the manufacturer, they offer goods, they sell goods. And then the right to repair movement says, and I'm generalizing when I say the right to repair movement, like let's say like the legislation, they say, now you have to make your goods repairable by, and you have to offer the customer some sort of repair service by law. So this company now makes their goods repairable. So maybe they're slightly more expensive. So they maybe sell a few less of them because they're more expensive. Maybe it's the same. And they also offer a repair service, which they're allowed to charge for. But because these goods are repairable, the consumer can also choose to go to a third party repairer, someone who is not affiliated to the brand, but maybe offers the same service because the right to repair movement says information needs to all be open. And so you need to access all information. And so the third party repairers know how to repair something and can do it just as well as the brand can, but will do it for less money. So then as a consumer, you go to your local third party repairer. But now the manufacturer has a problem because the money that they would usually make from their service offering for repair is being taken by the third party repairer and they're being undercut. And so they either need to drop the price of their service or they need to produce more goods. And that service, they can't do it below cost, below break even because it wouldn't be worth it for them. So there, there's a flaw there. And so they, they're likely to produce more goods to make up for the difference to these shareholders to keep profits high. And so this is like a really real risk, I think, of right to repair. If goods are forced to repair and keep open source information, then there'll be competition between the manufacturer and the third party repairer, which will drive the manufacturer to capitalize on its advantage, which is the fact that they are the manufacturer. So they'll end up producing more goods, which will be sold and then flood the market um, and potentially lead to a higher usage of raw materials. Of course, some products might have their lifespan extended, but assumably you can't repair all products that exist. Some will inevitably go to waste. There's 
a very high probability for manufacturers of high volume, low cost goods and, and also high volume, high cost goods. I think the bluntness of any policy is really difficult, right? Is cause like you're trying to get a very specific solution and you're not going to get that. And the specific solution is using repair to improve these, these behaviors around trashing stuff. But that's not always going to be the case. The due diligence you talked about is hugely important. And I think that as a movement, not getting bogged down in like very black and white thinking and trying to get to down to the details of what is best is going to be the most helpful. Yeah. And I think for me, this is really where this idea stemmed from. Can manufacturers partner with third party repairers? Ali means of the Gilder. Thank you so much for coming on the Fight to Repair podcast. We really appreciate it. And I'm sure we'll have you back again. 